Awesome Nerds, and welcome to episode 5 of D&D and TV. I'm your host, Jeremy, and with me today is the man who has never been scared by any horror game ever, Mike. That's right, and anyone that says I'm still in therapy after having completed three quarters of the PC game Visage is a filthy liar. That game was nothing to me. I'm fine. There's definitely not video on demand on his, his Twitch channel. And today we are looking at episode five of the first season of Invincible. Uh, we've been doing this for a little while now where we talk about each episode as a, a rewatch podcast and how the plots and themes and characters can be used in Dungeons and Dragons or role-playing games. Um, just fun things, like, you know, as you do when you're watching TV. You, you like this stuff. But as I said, we are looking at episode five today, which is That Actually Hurt. Uh, directed by Jeff Allen and written by Christine Lavath. Lavath? I'm not really sure how to pronounce Christine's last name, unfortunately. It's L-A-V-A-F, uh, which I'm going to assume is Lavath. And honestly, my favorite episode of the season. Mike, are you going to um, back me up on that one and claim this is your favorite episode of the season? Well, you kind of you kind of got me in a box there, Jeremy. I mean, um, I want to back you up. Um, I do, but you know there uh, <laughs> there there is another episode that um, had certain um, uh, events or scenes, um, some very brutal ones that was a certain a certain highlight uh, for me, which we'll get to. We haven't reached that episode yet. Um, it is a fa- it is a pretty fantastic episode, though. Um, you know this this episode five. This is a good episode. We won't get to the. We won't get to what Mike's referring to because while we are a spoiler full podcast um, for Invincible because, you know, it's pretty easy to spoil. There's not that too much that really happens that can be spoiled. We are spoiler free for the comics uh, that Invincible is based upon. So if you've seen all of Invincible, you know exactly what Mike's talking about, I'm certain. And if you haven't, then there's some fun stuff still to come. But like you were saying, episode five, and this is the episode, well, let's read the synopsis. Feeling confident in his new abilities, Mark risks a team up with a local villain to take down a crime lord while simultaneously juggling school and a new relationship. Well, that's uh, short and sweet, but very fair, I think. Um, It is. Yeah. I've noticed that the synopsis is getting a lot shorter as the season goes on. And it almost feels like they're not... They get vaguer as well. And suddenly the last episode is just like, Mark fights. <laughs> it sure does. Or, like, yeah, um, that's, that's true. I feel like maybe that's not 100% accurate for the last episode. It's like maybe Mark is in a fight. <laughs> um, I think that there's an argument to say he doesn't really yeah. do much of the fighting. But yeah. Yeah, it, it doesn't give any of the elements of the show away. I mean, even this, it doesn't even mention who the villain is that Mark's teaming up with. And which is a shame because honestly, like I said, this is my favorite episode. I think the, the villain, well, not even the villain, the, um, the antagonist, let's say, or the co-protagonist in the episode is possibly my favorite character. Certainly going to be the one that I pick for this episode, even though we usually save that until the end. Yeah. I just want to want to bring it out now, so you're all aware. Well, and you know, what, one thing that I really like about this episode um, is that because one one thing that I've often um, had a bit of a gripe about, um, or one thing that I've complained about a, n- a number of times, um, even specific to this show, 
is that there seems to be a fair bit of time dedicated towards uh, the the standard stereotypical superhero tropes that uh, it does seem to spend a lot of time on. And um, the biggest one being the, uh, the, the, the trials and tribulations of a superhero as they attempt to keep their superhero identity secret from the people that they care about. And um, there have been episodes previously in this show where it feels like a fairly big chunk of the episode is dedicated towards that sort of stuff. Um, but in this episode, however, uh, it, it's like for the first three, four, five minutes of the show, they do they just do a mashup um, where they're following Mark Invincible and another character, which I'll allow you to introduce. Um, but they do very, very short vignettes of the daily life of these two characters as a as a bit of a mashup just for the first few minutes of the, of the episode to set the ground and on mark's side of thing uh side of things that's where they focus on that trope of hey he's a superhero teenager who's trying to get with a normal um unpowered uh girl that he really really likes while trying to keep his superhero identity secret from her and it's causing him so many problems and he's late to so many dates and he has to leave suddenly all the time and all that shit that we've seen about a million times before in the Supermans and the X-Men's and the Batman's and the everything, do you know what I mean? Spider-Man. Yeah, Spider-Man. Like, um, I don't have any time. I don't emotionally have any time for that anymore. Do you know what I mean? There's, there's a few things that I'm so very much over. Number one, at the top of that list, the, the one thing that I'll be happy never ever seeing again is a Batman origin story. Number two is the trials and tribulations of young superheroes hiding the secret identities from their would-be boyfriends or girlfriends. It's just something that I've seen about 150 million times, and I'm over it. I'm sorry. Like, it's not a criticism. I'm not saying they did it badly. I'm just so over it, and I'm glad they really got that out of the way quick in this episode. I think that's one of the strengths of the latest Spider-Man movies, um, Spider-Man Homecoming and Far From Home, that in the first one, Gendry, is it Gendry? No. Nick? No. Anyway, his friend. Um, I call him Gendry because that was the character's name in Ultimate Spider-Man for Miles Morales. Anyway, that character uh, discovers very early on that he's Spider-Man, so he has a confidant the same age that he can talk to. And in the second one, spoilers for Spider-Man Far From Home coming in, so if you haven't seen it yet, go watch it. Pause the podcast and go watch it because it's great. Mary Jane discovers uh, towards the end of the movie, but still before the climax, that he's Spider-Man. And that there's you know, shenanigans leading up to that and the hiding of the identity, but it's it's out there. It becomes a thing. And I really think it's because audiences get tired of that. They're not interested. They like the shenanigans for an hour or so. And after that, it's like, okay, I'm over this. Just tell her already. That's, that's the point of these stories to come clean in most cases. It's to, for that, that secret to be revealed. Mm-hmm. 100%. And um, so, like I said, I'm very glad, very glad that they got that out of the way in the first five minutes of the episode. Yeah, I think that vignette is... that. I think those vignettes are a really awesome way of introducing the characters, the two characters that we're going to see most in this show, but also giving you an update on how Mark's life is going as he trains with his dad, how he talks, about, talks with Amber, how the relationship is kind of on rocky ground because he's paying a lot of attention to her, when he's not with her, which is what I'm seeing um, 
most in this vignette because he's fighting a supervillain and he's texting her at the same time. And so he's happy to, you know, keep that distance. He's able to, because the supervillain's just like throwing stuff at him and it's bouncing off because he's, he's invincible. Um, but when he goes to meet her, he shows up late all the time. And there's a great little exchange where he's shown up late because, of course, he's shown up late because he was fighting stuff, but he's brought his favorite, her favorite coffee cake or ice cream cake. So he's brought her cake and she just says, you went, you're late because you went across town to get something for me to apologize for being late. <laughs> yes, I'm 20 minutes late, but there's no way you're going to be mad at me. And how do you figure that? Because I brought you Japanese cheesecake. You went all the way across town to get cheesecake. Yep. To make up for being late because you went across town to get cheesecake. Is that crazy? Yeah, it kind of is. I mean, I could take it back, but that'll probably just make me even more late. <laughs> and it's like, when you say it like that, his behavior is so fucking stupid. It's like, if he hadn't brought the cake at all, if he just apologized and goes, I'm sorry I'm late, maybe she'll forgive him, maybe she won't. But making it seem like he's doing something crazy because, and that's why he's late, it just makes him look so stupid. And it's exactly what you were saying. That it's that oh, I've got to hide this secret identity. It's like, if you just said, oh, I was fighting Cheetah. It's like, yeah, sorry. There was, King Lizard was uh, was tearing up downtown. I had to, uh, to punch him in the face. Sorry about that. Honesty is indeed the best policy. And that's a really interesting um, separation. I mean, I think we'll jump all around this episode rather than just telling it in order because there's a slight reveal with the other character in this, Titan, the um, the the bad guy or you know he's not a, a bad guy he's an anti-hero i think it'd be that he has a wife and family and while his daughter doesn't know he's a, he's a villain his wife certainly does and i think that's a really interesting counterpoint between him and mark that mark's lying to his significant other and titan who does really bad things and isn't saving the world is quite open about why he's doing these and he's doing them because he has to his daughter's sick and he needs the money to help her and he's doing this as a team with his partner that she's working all day and he's working as well using his skills to beat the crap out of people to burn down houses it's like that's kind of what i need to do to help my kid because we're a family Again, it's that father that father child dynamic that we're going to see in every single episode. I think it's not at all subtle about about its uh, its daddy issues. This show, oh, totally. And uh, another um, another interesting element of the um, the Titan character as well is that he's also um, quite clearly a character who believes in the whole the end justifies the means philosophy um yeah you know they're because you know you know we'll, we'll we'll get to the the payout at the end of it you know what titan really gets out of everything in this episode after he goes to invincible for help which is what he does um but it there are two there are two um warring philosophies um you know generally when it comes to the idea of the the classic uh, good versus evil, or just epic transversal journeys—you know, telling about the growth of a um, of a particular character or whatever—and the the two philosophies are: firstly, ends justifies the means, or secondly, 
what's the point of winning if by winning you lose what you're fighting for? You know? Um, and this episode very much focuses on uh, what one character gets out of his ends justifies the means philosophy. And uh, he doesn't do too badly. <laughs> you know, mini spoiler. But uh, he does. Titans. Titans just awesome. Yeah, you, you also got to wonder of when it comes to playing a game on the tabletop. Um, you know the you know the the, the the biggest and best example being Dungeons and Dragons is that um, there's always a um, I think well not always but I think the most popular uh, stance or the most popular um, perspective that you see shared online. Um, is that murder hobos are bad, right? Um, you know, the, the parties that don't care about story, they don't care about character relationships, they don't care about overarching plot lines. The kinds of characters who are just all about kicking the door, murder everybody, pick up the loot, go find something else to murder and have your fun that way, right? The most prevailing sentiment on the internet is that that's a bad thing, right? But... Yeah. Maybe, just maybe, there are situations where murder hobos will absolutely have more fun and a more rewarding experience out of a tabletop game than the groups that spend hours upon hours in political intrigue or uh, exploring the backstory of the local tavern keep, you know, um, to try and find out what's the, you know, how can they possibly, you know, manoeuvre the relationships of the local blacksmith and the local farrier in order to get the happiest ending for those particular characters and blah, 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 instead of being the party that's just like, you know, that farrier's probably got a bunch of gold in his chest. Let's kill him. Take it. I feel like the murder hobo group is basically the people who skip all of the speech dialogue in a in a video game RPG where it's like skip 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 where's the next quest token going great I'll go over there what am I supposed to do kill that person great I'm just going to kill that person I wasn't meant to kill that person alright well I'll reload <laughs> whereas there are other people who will go through all the options and play it to the end and then go back and replay all those options and they're the ones that want the political drama because they want to find out every possible way it could have gone whereas the murder hobo is like no no there's an end goal in sight it is the end justifies the means. What gets me to the win condition? Mm-hmm. And that's that's kind of what Titan is in this, um, to, to segue back to the episode. But yeah, he's the one that goes, what gets me my goal? And my mm-hmm. goal is safety for my family. Um, if people have to get hurt along the way, yeah, that's that's fine. And I think that's a really interesting way of not dealing with murder hobos, but I guess... Um, giving a reason for murder hobos in a universe. So what do the murder hobos really want? Do they want to kill everyone or do they want a specific thing? Do their characters want a thing? Is it blood? And you go, okay, well, why do you need blood? Do you need blood because your God wills it? Is it because you're a psychopath? Do you just like gold? If you just like gold, there are a bunch of ways that a game master can give you gold and you can still kill people. And it can be, yeah, you're just robbing everyone or you're after power. And yes, we're going to rob everyone and we're going to set you up as this, this mob boss, as this this evil necromancer who's, you know, evil landlord who's owning all these things. It's, you find out what they want and then 
the end will justify the means. That, or in this case with a murder hobo, they've already got the means. You've got to find out why they're doing it. You've got to have that end. And again, bringing it back to Invincible, I feel that we don't find out why Titan is doing a lot of the things he's doing until about halfway through the episode. But once we do, everything makes sense. Even we know what he will do at the end of the episode. Because we've already seen what he's prepared to do up until that point. And, okay, I'll ju- I've been talking a lot now, so I'll go into what Titan actually is. Titan is basically Luke Cage. If you've seen Marvel's Luke Cage, that is what he is. But instead of just having really rock-hard skin, he actually covers his body in rock. And we're introduced to him as he walks into, I guess it's like some sort of gang headquarters where they're packing something up, and he just slaughters the entire crew. Not intentionally. He, like, gets shot, and the bullets bounce off his head and shoot someone else in the face. And it's just like, he's murdering everyone, but not intentionally. And eventually he just, like, yeah, grabs the boss and breaks his neck and gives a message to somebody else to go and tell their boss that they're not allowed here anymore. It's a fucking badass entry for, for someone that we're going to... Well, I like him from that. But for someone that we've seen before, because he was the bank robber that Mark stopped in the very first episode, for someone who we've seen before, it's suddenly this... This guy's got more depth. We know a bit more about how tough he actually is and that he's got this history already. A, a like pretty um, telling element to that first scene there where he busts up the, the criminal warehouse uh, is that, you know, he, he's got the crime boss by the neck and he talks about how, you know, you go tell your boss that I'm coming for him or whatever. And then he just goes and snaps the boss's neck and you're like, oh, wow, he can't send a message if the message is dead. And then he turns around and there's a young teenage kid there that's working for these mobsters. And um, he's just like, uh, you know, don't be a stupid kid. Don't shoot that gun at me. You go, you take the message. But the kid, you know, he's terrified and he freaks out and he pulls the trigger and he shotguns Titan in the face. You know, knocks off, actually hurts him and knocks off a bunch of that, uh, um, you know, rock armor. Um, But Titan still, you know, kind of... um, subverts expectations in that you know he doesn't kill the kid as a result mm. he stands up and he just tells the kid get out of here just go I'm, I'm, letting, you, I'm letting you live see ya and uh, it's quite telling and a, and a quite revealing element of his personality yeah I think that's one that you can kind of brush off as he needs to send the message that he does need to keep this person alive because they're the only one left alive to to translate what he's tr- tell, trying to tell the um the mob boss or the gang leaders in the vicinity. The next time we see him, he's setting fire to an apartment building. He's like, all the the tenants are standing on the street and he just kind of walks out and the building goes up. And the tenants are like, well, where do we live now? I mean, what the hell? And he turns around and gives us some cash and is like, look, there's, there's a hotel. And it's like, he burned down a building. He's obviously doing this for a reason, but he's not deliberately just randomly hurting people. And the time after that we see him, He's dangling somebody off a roof by his foot and saying, look, you got to give him, you got to get the money. you got to get the money. And he's like, I don't have the money. He grabs the wallet out, goes through it. He finds a photo of the guy and his kid. He goes, he got two days. He decides not to kill this person because he's got a child. He's like, well, maybe, maybe we can help. It's interesting that that scene is then backed up by the one with Nolan and Mark where they're hanging a bomber or somebody who set some sort of bombs around the city and they're holding him upside down a good 200 feet or so, like really high up in the air and Mark's inter- getting taught how to interrogate supervillains. 
God. The gravity bomb! Where is it? I'll never tell! <sighs> now what? Mark, you have to scare him. Make him think you'll actually drop him. I can hear you! I don't know, that, that seems mean. All right, here, I'll show you. <laughs> there, see? Uh... Now he'll tell me everything. Okay, but you're gonna catch him, right? Yeah. In a second. And, oh, that's, I love that moment. It's so fucking cool. Yeah, see, I thought that was Doc Seismic. Um, when I, when I, when I watched, when I saw the episode. No, Doc Seismic's, Doc Seismic's not. Yeah, yeah. Like, um, but, you know, I think it was just because the, like, the trench, trench coat, the bald head, um, you know, for some reason I just thought, oh, I thought that guy wasn't, I thought that guy was dead from the last episode. There he is. Um. <laughs> But yeah, no, it's it's not Doc Seismic. <laughs> Such a shame. Doc Seismic's fantastic. And in the meantime, during all these little vignettes, the other side of the coin from Titan doing his stuff is Mark trying to juggle his superhero duties with all the failures of dates that he's having with Amber. And Amber is getting more and more progressively pissed off about it. Great. Done. All right. Now that we're done with that stuff, <laughs> let's uh, move on to the next thing. <laughs> um, there was a uh, there was an ep- part of the episode shortly after that where the where Titan um, in his civilian gear is um, having a beer on his balcony after having brought ice cream home to his daughter and uh, you know having a little bit of a conversation with his wife about how you know I'm trying to get out but it's not that simple blah 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 and he looks up in the sky and sees Invincible flying over. And uh, his daughter asks him, that's one of the good guys, right? And Titan says, that's what people say. And that hatches a plan within, within the mind of Titan. Yeah, I feel we've, we've skipped over, probably because I was talking a lot about how cool Titan is, um, skipped over a vital scene just before that where he does go to his boss. And yeah, a machine yeah. head voiced by, um, Jeffrey, voiced by Jeffrey Donovan of... Um, of burn notice and a bunch of other stuff as well. But he goes to see this guy and basically says, cool, that's me done. My debt is paid. I've worked for you for all the stuff that all the money I borrowed and machine head goes, no, no, you're too useful. That's the last of it paid in full. I'm done. Mm, Nah, nah. See Titan, your problem is you're too useful. You get shit done. You take bullets like a champ and don't even whine about it. Unlike someone else in the room. It was one fucking time, I said- Shut the hell up! Yeah, yeah, sometimes you let people live when they need to die. But man, you make an impact. If you didn't just finish paying off your debt, we'd be talking bonus time. I don't need your money anymore. Sure you do. Come on, like you're gonna go clean? Work the fry station at Burger Mart? That ship has sailed, amigo. This is your life now. This is what you do. No, it's not. You're a walking pile of rocks. You break heads. That's it. That's all. Own it already. See, I know you're going to keep working for me. The question is, how painful do you want it to be? What are you doing? (laughs) You think you can just punch your way out of this? I know where your family lives, and that means you work for me until I say you're fucking done. Yeah, see? See? 
Impressive shit like that is exactly why I'm never letting you go! Plus, now you gotta pay for the desk, too. This was imported Italian maple. Basically, you're gonna keep working for me until you're, you're dead. Now, Titan can never get out of it. And that's why he's, he's thinking to his, his wife, what can we do about this? And that's when he sees Invincible and he, plot, he hatches this plan of, well, can I get rid of Machine Head? There's a, there's a superhero. Superheroes deal with villains. Mm-hmm. One plus one equals two here. It's not going to be too difficult to, to get this guy on board. Machine Head also talks with uh, with this auto-tune voice as well, which um, I thought was really interesting. <laughs> I always thought he was going to bust out into a song at some point, like when because he would just talk and then it would his voice would auto-tune um, to emphasize certain points. And it just sounded like, it, I don't know, it was going to be like a Demi Lovato song or something. And um, it was an interesting take. Or Double Rainbow. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, in, interesting element, the auto-tune voice. Um, definitely made the character of Machine Head stick out. Mate. I think it was fantastic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think Machine, Machine Head's a, a fascinating character. I think he was underused in in this episode i think that there's a lot that they could have done with him and there's we'll we'll kind of go through the rest of the episode a bit because there is other stuff going on um because that's kind of up to where where titan sees mark flying around with the villain the elephant who he's dragging away by the trunk because of course he is why of course there's someone called the elephant there's someone called the rhino in marvel there's definitely someone called the element elephant in invincible but that's when we get the title sequence, which is just, you know, invincible with blood splattered on it. And the next scene we have is um, in Debbie in her closet, um, which is a recurring theme in these episodes. Debbie walks into the closet, but this is where she finds Damien Darkblood's notebook that he left there last episode. And we saw in the um, in the stinger and she finds it and starts to read it. And then Nolan comes in looking for something and she actually hides the notebook from him. So we're starting to see that she no longer trusts Nolan at all with anything to do with this this whole Guardian's murder thing. Yeah. It even shows, um, you know, the that point is further proved by a bit later in the episode. So Debbie reads that notebook and uh, she finds that among all the other information that Darkblood had gathered, he really wanted to find the costume. Uh, that Nolan was wearing at the time of the incident with the Guardians. It's because clearly that's going to be the most important part of evidence. Um, so a bit later in the episode, she tricks Nolan into saying, hey, can you uh, pick up a couple of things for me uh, from different places throughout the world or whatever, you know, go to Naples and get pizza or something. I forget exactly what it was, but she sends him away to go pick up. Yeah, but she's timed him. Yeah. So she spends 20 minutes frantically searching through the house to try and find the costume. Um, and she does find it, doesn't really, but that's when he arrives back and she doesn't have time to do anything about it. So, um, but it definitely lays the, the, the framework uh, for the fact that Debbie is on to him now. Um, she's, she's really starting to clue in uh, to, to Nolan's nefarious uh, goings on, you know? Yeah. She's certainly suspicious of what his motivations are um, at the moment, which is good. Yeah, fucking get clued in, Debbie. 
Come out of that closet. That's it. That's kind of Debbie's plot in this episode. That's really all she kind of does, unfortunately. And there are a couple of side plots. Like the next bit is um, is Eve and her fa- well, yeah, Eve and her family. Which, what did you think of this scene? I, I would like to get your take on it. This is the one where she's fighting with her parents because they no longer want her to be a superhero because she broke up with Rex, and they thought thought that Rex would be able to keep her safe. Um, and now she doesn't have a team to work with. She's just kind of superheroing on her own. Yeah. And they're, they're furious about this. They're like, just just go and apologize to Rex and go get him back because then you'll be safe. Or or even just don't do it at all, which is another option. Yeah, I feel like they really looked for some of the worst examples of parenting that they could possibly find to give Eve an excuse to separate, right? Oh, yeah. Because um, you've got the um, you've got the father, right? Who, and I'm sure there's you know there's there's going to be someone out there that says deep down all he wants is for his daughter to be safe, and he wants that for the, the the most assured way for that to happen. Blah blah blah. But at the end of the day, um, you know, Eve's dad is super angry because Eve has bailed out on the uh, the Guardians team because she refuses to be a part of anything to do with Rex, who cheated on her. And her yeah. dad has taken the perspective of yeah. you being in the team is the best thing for this family. So you should, you know, bite the bullet, go back to the go back to the guy that cheated on you, do what you've got to do to make that relationship work again, and then join the team because you joining the team is the best outcome for us. Right? Forgive Rex because Rex and you know, again, this is me quoting um, or paraphrasing. Uh, forgive Rex because Rex is a teenage boy, and teenage boys make mistakes. So get over it. Get back with the guy that cheated with you, and join the team. So that's the that's the dad's perspective, and you know, there's a there's a show of him getting angry with her uh, when she rejects the idea of it, right? And then you've got the uh, then you've got the mother standing beside the dad. And uh, the mother makes no, um, at least I can't remember it, but the mother makes no moves to, says nothing at all to support the daughter either, to support Eve. She just kind of sits there and just puts a more passive spin on the same angle that the dad is working. Did you notice that her mother called her Samantha? I did not notice that, no. Yeah, that's like almost, it's a throwaway line in this episode, but it does come up in future episodes that Eve's name is not Eve, it's Samantha. Yeah, right. And this this comes like a really interesting point because like you were saying, the mother doesn't do it. I don't think we even have a name for, for Eve's mother. This is a really important question about identity because Eve, and that's what I'm going to keep calling her as because she introduces herself to, to Mark, to Will, to Amber as Eve. She has this identity as Eve. Her parents clearly see her as a different identity, as this Samantha, which may be her birth name, but she's adopted the Adam Eve persona and sees that as herself. They don't support her in creating her own identity. They just want her to do what they, is good for their family. And that might be, yes, we have a daughter alive and at home because that's how we see our family. But she's like, but I want to strike I want to make sure that I'm doing what's best for me. I want to make sure that I'm in a place where I'm happy 
and they've saying, no, no, you don't need to be happy. Why be happy when you can be normal? And they've accepted that she's got superpowers and isn't normal, but this is the normal. You work on a team. You live at home. You deal with wrecks. That's just what you do to stay stay safe. And she's trying to break out her own. And I think it's really telling that it's not even addressed that she has this other there's this other persona that they see her as this this Samantha that they grew up with and they're not realizing that Eve is who she is now mm-hmm. and uh I'm gonna leave that pause in just to everyone know just how fucking massively I just blew your mind um and you know after this argument happens um good for her she refuses to cow to the demands of her father and she leaves. And uh, so, you know, she, she makes the decision yeah. that it's time to look out for number one because very obviously nobody else is, you know? Yeah, I kind of want to... We won't go all, like, scene by scene with Eve's story because there's other stuff going on this episode. I feel that it's an important one, but the next episode is really where we get a full element of what is going on with Eve but she's essentially doubting whether she wants to even be a superhero anymore that she doesn't understand what it is about like she's got superpowers does that mean she has to be a superhero is there something else she could be doing with her life and she has a conversation with Mark about hey you've got not great grades maybe you should start thinking about getting those up if you want to go to college and they run into Amber who um, invites them to a to a soup kitchen where she works with her mother and Eve goes along with her. Uh, Mark's supposed to as well, but something happens because of course it does. But it's at the soup kitchen that Eve actually kind of realizes what I like doing is helping people. Mm-hmm. That this is why she was a superhero because people, she's able to do something about it. That philanthropy of with great power comes great responsibility. And that's just these three scenes, very short scenes with Eve where you get this entire arc for her of her questioning what she actually believes anymore, this opportunity, and then discovering again. And it's it's completely underplayed when Mark is the, the main event of the story. I think it's a really, really telling thing. And again, it's an episode about helping people. And, um, and Eve's probably the best example of that, of choosing to help people because you can. Oh, 100%. Um, There's also a small side character scene sandwiched in this section of the episode as well, uh, where the newly formed Guardians of the Globe are uh, meeting after a victorious battle. Most importantly, Rex is still an arsehole. He's such a tool. So, you know, they've just uh they've just been involved in a battle and they've gone and they've had their great victory and whatnot most of them are celebrating and happy and you know they break out um they break out some celebratory beers which they're technically not allowed to but you know someone snuck them into the headquarters and whatnot but guess who it was it was rex yeah of course it was rex he's an asshole um but the the veteran of the team and the former um guardian of the globe when it was the real guardians of the globe i still have trouble accepting the current team as the real guardians right but um they're the new guardians of the globe yeah um but black samson uh is angry and um you know he is less celebratory than all the others because he's like hey 
2,000 people were admitted to hospital because of your failures to act as a proper team and unit in that fight. Um, you got no right to be happy when you did such a horrible fucking job, you know? Um, you know, him and Robot actually pull up a hologram and go point by point via, you know, through the, the various team failures and the way that they've got to work better as a team and they've got to do a better job of protecting the civilians, etc. Um, so Black Samson is a bit overbearing in this scene. Like, you know, I feel he comes off as, uh, as the angry principal that's, you know, putting him through detention as opposed to... Um, you know, the mentor that's trying to lift their level a bit. Um, but, you know, the rest of them, Rex in particular, uh, also overplay a bit the the refusal to, you know, to listen and learn as well. You know, they're, they're very indignant about it. Yeah, they're really cocky about their abilities. They're just like, yeah, we saved the day. We were victorious. We stopped King Lizard. It's fine. Um, there is a really good, or I guess not example, but um, what they're definitely drawing on for Black Samson in this scene, which is um, the Keith Giffen, uh, Jim DeMattis run of, uh, I can't believe it's not the Justice League, which is uh, Justice League International, where Hawkman was a member, and he was exactly like that. Like, in the old days of the League, we did it these way, and it was played for last, but here it's played for, the team sucks, because they all operate as individuals, they don't operate as a team. And I think oh, it's made even worse because everyone kind of storms off after that scene, but Robot's just kind of watching Monster Girl go. And I'm like, dude, be even more creepy. Could could you manage that? For an expressionless robot, he really does give off a creepy vibe, doesn't he? Yeah, I, I'm stunned that a robot that just stares all the time is uh, is coming off as creepy. It's, yeah, shocking to me. Speaking of robot, he's got his fingers... His robotic fingers in more than one organic pie, huh? As um, that's creepy. Yeah, yeah. Um, as we cut to the Mauler twins. Well, Mauler twin at this stage. Twin. Yeah, yeah. Coming fresh out of the oven is a brand new Mauler twin. However, as the process completes, and uh, the the scene basically focuses on the arrival of the new Mauler twin. Both of them, of course, believe they're the original and not the clone. Um, but shortly after the new one awakes, we see why they believe they're the original now. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's the, I love this scene. I think it's so cool because we can tell the difference because, um, one of them's, well, one of them's lied down on the right hand side of a table and he puts the, the new body on the left hand side and strap like this contraption to their heads. And there's like a shaking, a, an electric thing. And then the one on the left hand side sits up and he goes, ah, the operation was a success. I'm glad it it was I, the, the original, that woke up first. And you realise that even though we know that one was the clone, he thinks he's the original. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's this cool little way of saying, and now we know why they're always bickering about who's the clone and who's the original, because it seems like they don't know. 100%. Um, and then after this, uh, after this um, wake-up scene happens with the clones, then Robot shows up out of nowhere. And uh, it kind of makes you wonder because there's no there's no indication here of how much time passes between most of these scenes either. Like, um, no. you know, it could be instantaneous or it could be six months down the track. We don't really get any kind of bearing on how long it takes. So um, it felt like it could have been either 
um, shortly after the meeting that the Guardians had, or it could have been at the exact same time, and it's just one of another robot's construct constructs, you know, going out to do this. But yeah, you don't know how long it takes between the two. Um, but either way, robot shows up, finds finds the Molot twins, shows up, and after an initial scuffle, he's like, "I'm just here to talk. I want to make a deal." Uh, I've got some DNA, I've got some, like, you know, a test tube of DNA or blood samples here, and I want you guys, because you're the experts, to help me grow a body out of this stuff. And, uh, that's kind of where it cuts away. We we don't get the response from the Molot Twins here in this episode, that's just kind of where it cuts away. And, um, that kind of just follows the trend from previous episodes, where we've seen things like... Um, robot stealing the DNA from Rex, uh, robot releasing the Molar Twins from prison, um, seemingly working against the best interests of the Guardians for God knows what reason. Now we're starting to figure out what that reason is. That's really cool that you can do in, in role-playing games as well. It's basically foreshadowing that you start to lay out these breadcrumbs um, of what's going to come before, that you give a question that you can't get answered immediately, that we saw Robot release them from prison. You're like, well, why the hell is Robot doing that? In a game, you can have something like that. An ally, when you're doing a a heist or something, goes, no, no, give me 10 seconds or give me a minute or two, and they just do something. And you're like, why'd you do that? Like, don't worry, it's not important. And it just plays in the back of the player's mind. You just think, "What, what was that about? And then three sessions later or 10 sessions later, it comes up again or something else happens. And it just, it builds up this little, this little picture that you can slowly put together until the right time for it to come out is it's, it doesn't even have to be anything major. You can do it as a game master and have no idea where it's going, but just remember it. Yeah. And then you build it a little bit later because, Hey, players aren't going to remember most of this stuff anyway, but when they do, it feels amazing. It's also kind of funny when the players see foreshadowing when there actually is none, you know? Um, like, I remember one one that sticks out in my mind was that when I was running a game for, for, for some friends, there was just a scene where they were travelling back to their home city through the wilderness, and they made long rest at the end of the day, and they slept through the night. And um, I just, you know, made the comment, you know, explaining the scenery and the atmosphere of, you know, it's a clear and cloudless night and the moon shines out brightly. Uh, You know, you rolled very highly on your perception check when you were on watch and it didn't mean anything. I just hadn't rolled perception because I wanted to think something might happen. But in this particular long rest, there was nothing that was going to happen. But they rolled very high on their perception check, so I just described the scenery from them. A bright, shiny moon, clear, cloudless skies, crisp, clean night air, and, you know, you're you're very well focused on your surroundings. You even hear the howl of a wolf in the distance and whatnot. And then the minute they heard that, they then zeroed in on, there's a wolf? How far away? What direction? Does it sound hostile? Blah, blah, blah. And then every single long rest afterwards, they were always asking, do I hear that wolf? Do I hear the wolf? Where is it? And I was just like, all right, I'll play along. <laughs> and then, so every single long rest, I think that they, they were terrified of getting ambushed by a pack of werewolves or something. But that was just me describing the scenery for them. You know, like miles away in the distance, you hear the howl of a wolf. And that became so important to them. <laughs> like for every single long rest at nighttime, they were, uh, they, they were desperate to figure out more about this wolf that didn't really ever exist, you know? But then when you do throw a pack of werewolves at them, hey... It was planned all along. Look at you picking up the the pieces and... (laughs) Yeah. 
Oh, that's so cool. I love it. So that's kind of all the, the side scenes of the episode. So we can get into the meat of... Well, I, I don't know if it's the meat. I mean, this is Mark's story. The Invincible story is Mark's story. So his plot line is the A plot line most of the time. Uh, and so getting into that, this is when Titan contacts him. I love the way he contacts him as well. He just writes... He paints on a rooftop that Mark's probably going to be going to be flying above and he writes NVNCBL Invincible Invincible and he says why (laughs) you missed a few letters paint costs money and you got a long ass name which is paint costs money and you got a long ass name it's like you know what that endears titan to me immediately it's like no he and that's the thing he goes to it's the end justifies the means why does he need to use vowels when he can do do it this way i mean mark got the message didn't he and essentially he confronts yeah, mark yeah. and he's like look i need i need help i'm i'm not a bad guy i'm not here for a rematch or anything like that there's a guy called machine head and he runs this city basically he's a cruel person that um, rips people off and deals drugs to kids and all this other stuff what are you doing about it you're a superhero what the and fuck you know what I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna like put it out here and give props to Titan for reaching out and asking for help in this age of toxic masculinity. It's a good thing to be able to reach out to your mates or even the people that are not your mates and ask for help. Good on you, Titan, setting uh, setting a good example. Even your arch nemesis. I mean, it's it's reaching out. That's the important thing. He's saying, "Hey, I cannot do this alone," and I like that he goes through. He shows Mark all of these these things that Machine Head is doing to the city that Mark didn't even have a clue about. And he does bring it up. He's like, yeah, of course, you're a white boy from the suburbs. You have no fucking idea what it's like living in this, in this under, underbelly of the, of the um, CBD. It's like, yeah, why would you? You're flying around in the sky. You're the 1%, Mark. That's kind of the point. You don't understand what it means for people on an everyday life. But he does also kind of go over what Machine Head's security is like, that he's got some, like he's got a right-hand man called Isotope who's able to teleport him out, and that's kind of the problem, that they can't make a hit on Machine Head while Isotope is there. So they have the plan of, look, I can take care of Isotope, but then we've got to team up and take Machine Head down. And this becomes a bit of a dilemma for Mark. He's like, should I help a criminal, someone who I know is a criminal, who I have fought before, for a bigger a bigger good a greater good that i'll deal with this other problem and he goes to nolan and he asks well what should i do and nolan's like this is beneath you 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 are a viltramite you should be you know stopping asteroids like we saw him do earlier in the episode you should be saving the world you shouldn't have to deal with this crap this is not your problem you're a viltramite Okay, you fought off an alien invasion, saved the country from an asteroid. This is beneath you. And that's very much in line with Nolan's thinking, isn't it? It's Nolan's like, I don't care about the people. I care about the overall picture. It's like, I'm about saving the world. If some people get hurt along the way, meh, they're people. There'll be more people. It, it really emphasized that single line that he used within that um, discussion uh, when he said to when he said to Mark, it's beneath you. Because, uh, yeah. you know, that really does come from a place of arrogance. Um, you know, not from a place of, 
Um, uh, not from a place of priorities, right? Because, um, you know, it'd be very understandable that if, you know, somebody was faced with the choice of um, do I save the old lady that's about to get hit by a bus or in this same moment, do I go and stop the asteroid that's going to kill 8 million people if it lands? I only have time to do one, right? That's not the choice that Mark is making here. The The choice that's that Mark's trying to make is that I've got the time to do it. I've got the resources to do it. I've got the the motive and the reasons, etc. Um, should I do it, Dad? And Dad says, nah, fuck that guy. You know what I mean? Like, you know, he's, yeah. he's below your level. He's not worth your time, you know? Um, you know, you need to fight a better class <laughs> to steal a line from the Dark Knight. You need to fight a better class of criminal. Do you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> and, you know, so that that's, uh, that, that's you know, from what we know as the audience, because we know a little bit more than Mark does about, you know, obviously, we, we know a lot more than Mark does about, you know, um, Nolan and, you know, his, his activities killing the guy. Everyone knows more about than Mark does. Yeah. Just, that's just uh, flat out. Mark doesn't know where Dakota is. Like you'll ever need to find Mongolia on a map. I know, right? No, you do need to know that. I'm not kidding. It's really important that you can find places from the air. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So we can see that comment from Nolan for what it is. When he says that it's beneath you, we can see that as the audience, and we recognize that comment for what it is, is that it's a, it's more of a sinister comment coming from a place of arrogance. Um, you know, Debbie does take the op as she tends to do now. Good on her, Debbie. His mum takes the uh, takes the other side of the argument instead, and um, you know the kind of comments that Debbie makes in that conversation uh, lead him, Mark, to decide that it is the right thing to do uh, to go and help Titan with this street level problem. It's interesting that Nolan kind of tries to back up his reasoning, saying that this this thug. I'm pretty certain he calls him a thug because that seems like the kind of thing the language he's going to be using about a black character, um, is using Mark. That he's just, he's exactly kind of what Titan is, is doing. He's like, I don't have enough strength, so I'm going to use somebody who's stronger than me. But that's Nolan's fear, in inverted commas. This is what he um, uses to justify his position of not helping someone to Debbie. Saying, I'm worried that Mark will not take advice from us as his parents that he will be falling in with a bad element and will be not making his own decisions, but he will make bad decisions because he's getting bad advice. We kind of know that's a load of shit, that Nolan just wants to be in mm. control. It's like Nolan wants, you know, Mark doesn't take advice from anybody but me, is is Nolan's idea. And it, it really does see that arrogance come through again. But Mark does choose to help Titan. Um he realizes, you know, Titan is doing this for a good reason, that his daughter is sick. He didn't want to be a criminal. He just wanted to, to help his child. And helping someone, as Debbie says, is is never beneath you, that that's what they're going to do. So they come up with a plan to lure Isotope away with a girl uh, because that's Isotope's MO. He's like, yeah, I'm just going to hook up with some chick and get paid. she'll get paid to keep him busy an extra hour. And they charge Machine Head's penthouse. It does not go well for them. Nope. And at this point, I would like to um, to quote a line from Star Trek The Next Generation here. 
which I feel is very relevant for this scene, that Mark and Titan Storm Machine Head's headquarters, in that when Jean-Luc Picard said to Data, it is very possible to make all the right decisions and still lose. That is not failure. That is life. So Mark and Titan show up and they get absolutely fucking pasted. It's a trap. It, it is a trap because that chip that Machine Head got Titan to give him earlier allows him to see potential futures. It gives him quantum computing skills, which means, yeah, he knew exactly what Titan was going to be doing and he knew exactly that Mark was going to be the one that was chosen to help him. And while he can't take them on in... Um, in raw power, he has a fuck ton of money, so he just hires a bunch of villains to help him. Because like I said, Invincible's right. I'm out of my league. Except I've got money. And they severely outnumber Mark and, and Titan. And it is oh, that sequence is like, oh shit, that's gonna go really poorly for you, Mark. Sorry about that, buddy. It's really good. I love the choice of villains in this as well. Do you, did you notice all the different types, or um, or do they flash past too fast to really get an idea of who they are? They've all got powers um, and abilities that are very reminiscent of a bunch of other superheroes. But I mean, that goes back to the whole: there's nothing new yes. under the sun, right? Um, I mean, I don't. I mean, I can't draw a direct correlation between these characters and what you might be hoping I could. Um, but all their abilities do seem familiar. They're, they're not exactly like a, you know, a Sinister Six or or Injustice League or anything like that. They're not specifically um, an existing comics bad guy team. If they had an invisible telekinetic force user, they could have been the Fantastic Four plus Battle Cat. <laughs> but, yep. um, but, you know, they... <laughs> Battle, Cat, Battle yeah. Cat. But they didn't have an invisible um, hero in this scene. Um, you know, they had the stretchy no, guy. No, they've got, um, they've got a, yeah, they've got the stretchy guy who's tongue lasher. They had the mech. Yeah, they had the mech. Um, they had the, you know, the, what was, what was the name of the... They had the, the electricity guy. Yeah, yeah. But what was, what was the name of, in Wing Commander, the, uh, the aliens that were like walking, um, cats, uh, like, you know, bipedal cats. Uh, people um the kilgari uh can't remember now but sure that, that's just, i never yeah. i never played wing commander unfortunately oh, that's a shame well this is the final episode of the podcast because we can't be friends anymore <laughs> um <laughs> i think it's interesting that you brought up star trek earlier because uh war beast the big white cat that you're referring yep. to in this this scene is actually voiced by Michael Dorn, as in Worf from Star Trek. Um, and that's fucking amazing because he is basically Worf from Star Trek. He's this kick-ass warrior who just beats the living crap out of people that looks like a giant white tiger. Mm-hmm. It's great. Oh, yeah. Uh, and he's really the, the, the highlight of the scene to me. Yeah. I mean, th- this, this fight was incredibly one-sided for the first half of it. You know, where it's just uh, Mark and Titan uh, trying to fight off this big group of uh, supervillains. Um, notably, yeah, there's a, a, like a cutaway shot in this um, in this episode where 
Um, Mark gets exploded and he explodes upwards through the roof and he falls back down. Um, whilst he's up there through the roof of the penthouse and in, in the middle of the air, you can see that Nolan is there watching this unfold. And he apparently seems to do nothing to help at all. And then you watch Titan and Mark get pasted for another five minutes while they're just trying to survive this encounter. But then the uh, the, the new Guardians bust through the wall like the Kool-Aid man. Oh, yeah. And uh, then um, <laughs> you know, one, of them, one of them makes the comment that Cecil got an anonymous call, so we're here to help. And you're like, oh, okay. Must have been Nolan that put the anonymous call in. He wanted to help Mark, but yeah, and this is my train of thought. Maybe other viewers got something of a, out of this scene than, than I did. But you know, I saw that, and you know, I think it was um, Samson that said it. Was that Cecil got an anonymous call? We're here to help. And uh, and then I thought, oh, okay. So Nolan saw what was going on, and he did want to help, but he didn't want to be there in person. Maybe it's because he's still trying to teach him the same lesson that he was trying to before at the house. Uh, but either way, he arranged for some help to come to uh, Mark and Titan's aid. Um, in the meantime, the new Guardians continue to fight and they keep getting fucking pasted. Even with the Guardians showing up, they still are not enough to really win the fight against this collection of supervillains. Well, that's kind of the point, isn't it? Because they're not working as a team again. That they've just shown up and they're like, well, we can, we'll break off into, we'll deal with each villain individually. We won't think about how it's going to interact. We're just going to attack each one and, and hope it goes well because that's what they're still used to. And that's kind of the exact same mistake that Mark made that he's like, no, no, I can just do this myself. I don't need any help. And Titan's the one who's reached out and said, hey, I need help with this because you can't do things alone. Uh, but yeah, the, the the Guardians, I want to say the Titans, Team Titans is, is still on my mind. Um, the Guardians, they get their asses kicked and it really is just this brutal beatdown. Like the other, the other villains are okay. They deal with them and it's like a back and forth between them. A couple of the times the Guardians will get the upper hand, but it's Warbeast who beats the living shit out of everyone who comes at him. It's like he's just beating the crap out of Mark and it looks like he's about to kill Mark. Like he's got this big mace and he's just about to bring it down. And Black Samson's like, no! And then gets his ass kicked too. He just like gets thrown, like shattered basically. Just absolutely shattered. And then Mark gets his ass kicked anyway. He like gets this massive mace down on the chest and like he's, I think one of his ribs pops out at that point. And Monster Girl gets her ass kicked too. Like, her face half gets cut, comes off. It's like this utter beatdown of the strongest characters we've seen so far besides Nolan. And it's like, who the fuck is Warbeast? Where the hell has he been? Yeah. And by and large, the only reason that, you know, the Guardians and Mark and Titan get out of this with any chance of surviving um, is because Warbeast decides, I'm done, man. Like, you know, I came, I saw, I conquered this is pathetic like you know this is there's no point in me hanging around to kill insects um so fuck you guys I'm it's out. beneath him <laughs> yeah it's beneath him um and that's the only reason why they survive the fight if if you know if he had hung around no doubt they would all be dead you know there's no doubt in my mind like you know that he had the power to kill every single one of them if he'd stayed 
but he chose to walk. And uh, because he walked, the tide turns and the, uh, the good guys managed to survive, if, even if not necessarily win. I don't think it fulfills the definition of the word win. I think it is interesting that um, the, to- the the Guardians showing up wasn't something that that Machine had expected. That his quantum thing hadn't actually predicted all of this. And he certainly hadn't predicted that they'd be able to be victorious. That he hadn't predicted that War Beast would go, nah, this isn't worth it. I'm just going to leave. Um, so he gets captured. But he also gets captured because... Well, Isotope's not there to to get him out, um, which is important because Isotope was the one that was teleporting everybody in, or teleporting all these villains in. So where did Isotope go? And it's like, well, mm-hmm. we we don't know yet. But Rex is the one I think that punches Machine Head out. Probably the best thing that Rex has ever done in this series to date. <laughs> the only time we're actually going to like Rex doing something. And you know what? I'm probably wrong. It's probably Shrinking Ray or someone else that punched uh, Machine Head out. And I think um, it's kind of good because Titan shows up again. Titan vanished for most of that fight. Uh, and he just kind of comes over to yeah. Martin and goes, sorry, kid, it's not personal. Um, and he just, he nopes out. He's gone. And leaving um, the the GDA to come and pick up the wounded and and um get them out of there as mark could be dying mm-hmm. and that's kind of it that's well it's, it's like one or two other scenes but that kind of ends the episode with mark having this epic beatdown and nearly killed um which is not great we don't we don't want that for our main character but you know what the writers really wanted us to care about from this from that scene what? you know what they really wanted us to care about and i'm sorry to you know directors of this episode but i really didn't is that because of him getting nearly fucking murdered mark missed his date with amber where <laughs> oh it's it is a little way i mean he had the lot this was amber saying i'm fed up with your bullshit of always being late you've got this one chance to come to the soup kitchen with me and eve and if you can't make it um we're pretty much through and of course, he doesn't show up because he's getting his ass kicked. I f- and I I like that Eve receives the news at the soup kitchen that Mark has um like seriously been seriously injured and doesn't really kind of tell Amber, mm-hmm. who's obviously furious and just over it all. But this is the first time Mark's got a, like a legitimate excuse for not being there. It's like he couldn't oh, control sure. nearly being killed. He. He kind of wanted everything to be over a lot earlier, but he hadn't planned it properly. Um, so his cockiness got him inched again. But for once, I kind of feel sorry for him for all the the other bullshit, all the other stuff he brought on himself. Getting a, a mace to the chest and being and nearly dying. I'm like, well, you know what? I still hope she breaks up with you, but this one's not your fault. That that's just me. <laughs> oh, for sure. That's what uh, very clearly the you know. <laughs> The directors of this episode really wanted that to be the send-off uh, from what this whole, what this event all really, really meant. And it, that little... I mean, most of the episode I loved, that that little bit didn't really hit home for me, but that's just a very subjective that's perspective fair. of, you know, once again, I'm really over that element of superhero tropes. But, you know, 
don't really much I can do about that other than just sit back and enjoy the ride and wait for those moments that, you know, really do stand out to me. And there's a lot of those moments in this show, for sure. Mm, the soap opera drama of superhero life is never one that really entertains me. Uh, what I do like is that Titan, at the end of this, ends up in charge. That he's standing there, Isotope's yeah. walking through the ruins of the penthouse after all the wounded have been taken away by the GDA. And he's like, so what now, boss? And Titan turns around in the kick-ass suit and he's like, I'm going to make this city better for a lot of people. Some people come first. And that's going to be his family as they show up. And his little his daughter's like, do we live here now, daddy? He's like, fuck yeah, we do. Because he's, he's the mob boss of the city now. And I love that. That, yeah, he's going to make the world possibly better. He's going to get rid of a lot of the stuff the machine head was doing. But he's still in charge. He's still doing it through nefarious mm. means. It's great. It's like, yeah, Titan gets everything he wants. It's like, well done, Titan. And that's why he's my favorite character for this episode. And that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, he's not the uh, he's not the mob boss that the town needed, but he's certainly the mob boss the town deserved. Well, maybe he's both, actually. As far as favorite characters go, I would uh, put my favorite character on Machine Head. Um, you know, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Not so much. I mean, well, it was a little bit for the uh, the really well done auto tune voice. Um, but largely because I've been playing a lot of Cyberpunk 2077, and mm -hmm. one of the aspects of that gameplay is the the quick hacking, where um, at any time in the game you can press tab and you know scan your surroundings and anything electronic uh, you can hack and um, you can have various effects on the environment as a result or any people you can hack as well because everybody's got cyberware you know built into them as well and um i just figured machine had to be that kind of a character yeah i just figured uh, machine had to be that kind of a character who um you know could walk through any environment and uh just remotely hack or remotely electronically interact with anything and everything with a glance and um just kind of put some of that cyberpunk style gameplay into a tabletop game um, it would obviously only really work in a modern day setting, like uh, like this, any actual cyberpunk role playing game, um, possibly the the BattleTech uh, role playing game, um, or for those of us, or Shadowrun, you know, or Shadowrun, one hundred percent, or for those of us who have uh, played role playing games for more than twenty years, possibly thirty. Um, the system D20 Modern or D20 Future, uh, which was a big element of the, or not a big element really, but an existing element uh, of the D&D 3.5 edition, um, where they brought out source books set in modern day with modern equipment and uh, in future, um, you know, with more advanced levels of technology uh, that existed there as well. So... In your stock standard sword and horse version of Dungeons and Dragons, obviously Machine Head wouldn't really be a thing unless you were to make him a psionic or psychic of some sort. Um, but in the in all the games that have a modern day or near future element, um, would absolutely be the right thing to do. On that note, wouldn't wouldn't it be amazing to see an altered carbon RPG? I wonder if that exists. There was a Kickstarter for an altered carbon PG, uh, RPG, in fact. 
Um, pretty certain yeah, they got funding. Right. So um, people should go have a look for that. It, it looks pretty good, actually. Uh, I actually disagree with you where you said that he wouldn't wouldn't work in a fantasy and sword and sorcery um, setting. Because I feel that while he wouldn't be able to hack everything, I mean, this is kind of what you were saying, that everything you like about the character is his ability to hack everything around him. Once he gets that quantum chip, he basically becomes a fortune-telling computer. And that could really work in, in a fantasy setting because you have this divination wizard who runs a crime syndicate because he can predict all the possible outcomes. He knows who's going to say what. He knows what his enemies are going to do. So he's able to like counteract them or just let them in and go, yeah, yeah, I'll do whatever you want because I know I'm going to win in the end. I know I've, I've got all the cards. I've prepared for all the eventualities. And you don't see enough of that sort of divination villain. You don't see enough of the, the mm. villain. Like... Game masters are able to go, well, he always predicted it. I'm just able to to use my meta knowledge. But to actually put it into the um into the character itself, to have them be this person who can can f- predict the future, and that's why they know what's going to happen and the players have to come up with a way around that, that would be really cool. I think that would be really fun. I mean, you could put it into cyberpunk stuff as well, that you do. he puts a quantum chip and suddenly he's he's someone who will predict every move that the players are going to make. It's Yeah, I like that idea. I think that's a, a fun one for, for an RPG. Um, not to, to say I disagree with your mm. choice of favorite character. I think he's a great character to choose. And honestly, if I hadn't picked Titan, it was a toss-up between Titan and Machine Head. It's just I'm a big fan of Luke Cage already. Uh, and Titan is essentially, what if Luke Cage was a little bit of a villain? Still doing it for good reasons, but just a little bit of a villain. And you can make him pretty easily in, in D&D. You just kind of make like a Goliath with like toughness and a little bit of a fighter, but this very low level of cunning. Like, not super smart, but smart enough to be able to manipulate other people. And I think that's yeah, that's a, a fun character to play as as a as a PC more so than as an NPC. Yeah, definitely. My mind is starting to run away with the possibilities of um, if he was an NPC. Um, I can just imagine him having having an interaction with the party, having a conversation like they walk into whatever whatever in innkeeper room or whatever throne room you might be in. And they're like, come with us, you know, we, we're taking you hostage, you know, you belong to us now. And he's like, yeah, okay, no worries, I'll go with you, I'm going to win anyway. Uh, by the way, just you, the ranger, um, be careful um, Be careful of that cobblestone in the floor that's about six feet behind your left foot. If you walk straight back towards the door, you will trip over that. Um, and then see how the party mm-hmm. reacts to that. I can see a lot of party members going like, no, I'm really good with dexterity, I'm going to show him up by going and um, not tripping over it. And then we're like, okay, roll. You trip over it. It doesn't matter what the result was. You've done it. <laughs> you can see everything. Fate finds a way. Well, I think that's pretty much everything oh. to say about this episode. Do you have we anything else you want to bring scene. up? Yeah, yeah. Post credit scene. We did. Well, yeah, yeah. We won't put it. We won't put it in our post credits. We'll talk about it now. It's not a long scene. Yeah, it's cool. um, just Donald, Donald um, Cecil's right hand man heading down to a sub-basement, like a secret basement in the GDA headquarters, where he and a scientist have been testing Mark's blood, um, taken from, well, from when Mark got his, the shit kicked out of him. 
And he reports back to Cecil that no matter what they throw at it, they're microwaving it, they're shooting them with lasers. Nothing seems to be able to kill the kill the blood. It's still alive. And that's, yeah, they're like, nothing seems to hurt a Viltrumite. We cannot, we cannot do anything about this. And that's it. Mm-hmm. So the two key takeaways from that are firstly, Viltrumites are invincible. And secondly, the Global Defense Force, or whatever they're called, are uh, trying very hard... Agency. Agency. Trying very hard to find a way to kill Viltramites. So it seems like they did not buy Nolan's... Well, we know that they didn't buy Nolan's... Um, Nolan's story that, that it was uh, Damien Darkblood that killed the killed the Guardians. So um, Cecil's up to something, and he's on to Nolan. I think everyone's going to be on to Nolan pretty soon. However... That will be all of it, all of the um, the episode for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Please join us next week when we look at episode six. You look kind of dead, uh, which will be it'll be interesting. I like this this episode too. But until then, I'd like to say farewell and uh, be kind to yourselves. Good night. Mm-hmm.